So I do a little bit of training. You can't really tell looking at me, but uh, I work out sometimes when I feel like it. It's good to have an accountability partner because on cold days, when you go at 5 o'clock, it's easy to say, I'm not going. Wind's too cold. But when your accountability partner says, you're going, then you go. And once you're there, it's no problem. But when you're working out, and I, growing up, I didn't work out at all. My dad was, had asthma, was not a big outdoorsy guy. We didn't really work out. You might be surprised I wasn't a huge athlete. Um, I was in the band. Uh, I think I've shared that once. Um, but uh, I did, you know, my brothers, we played basketball for fun. But I didn't do gym stuff. That's just not anything I did. And then as I age, you realize, you know, a little bit of workout might be a good thing for your metabolism, help your body stay in shape, all these things. Not to be, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, but to, uh, to stay in somewhat of a shape. But as you work out, you learn some things, and I knew nothing going in. Uh, Kirk has helped me. So if you're trying to do strength training, you would do more weight and less reps. If you're trying to do endurance training, you would do less weight and more reps. So are you going for endurance or are you going for strength? I'm like, I'm just working out. I don't know. I don't know. I'll tell you when it's too heavy, and I shouldn't do that anymore. Uh, I say all of that to endurance is something you have to learn to do physically, of course. But as we look today, it's actually a fruit of the Spirit. Some translations in Galatians 5 say patience. It's a synonym for it. But you, you, you follow through. You continue on. You, you, start, you finish what you start. It's that idea. Okay? You're enduring in your faith. Regardless of the trials, regardless of the ups and downs that come, you're going to be steady and you're going to finish your spiritual race, your spiritual walk. When it comes to life, it's, it's kind of easy if you think heavy weights or heavy, big things that happen in your life. Spiritually, we kind of, you can kind of get pushed through it real quick and it's over. But there's sometimes just the regular routines of life the regular hardships that come, the difficulties that are not going to go away tomorrow or next week or next month, they're going to be there. Those things, if you don't have endurance built into your life, they can cause problems. And some, even as we're going to look in Hebrews, some with those trials and difficulties, they can even uh, lose their faith. They, they, they just quit. I was, always, I was the one, I grew up with two brothers, one older, one younger, and if I were playing two-on-one or whatever, horse, and I'm losing, I would just quit. It made my older brother so mad. I'm like, and they would always say, quitters never win. I'm like, but I'm happy. So there you go. But uh, yeah, in the spiritual walk, we shouldn't quit. And a lot of people do quit. They quit their faith. They quit their, tra- their trust in God. And they look to other things. So this endurance, Hebrews 10.36 says, for you have You have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. We all have this need of endurance. Um, In the Christian life, you need it because, like I said, there's just daily some things. Some days are easier than others, but sometimes it's just really hard to do the same thing you've done every day. And even if you get retired, there's difficulties that come up, whether it's health issues or family issues, and it's just sometimes hard to get out of bed. but you should be, uh, we should endure, we should be diligent. So, the writer of Hebrews, we're not real sure who exactly wrote it. Um, there's different ideas of who that is. Um, but in other passages, it says, Peter says in, 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 in Peter, uh, Peter 4.12, he says, we're going to have fiery trials. You're going to go through difficult times. 
Uh, Job's friends put it like this, Yet man is born to trouble at the sparks fly upward. You have trouble in your life? That's about right. That's about it. Um, Some troubles are because we belong to Christ. Others are simply because we live in a fallen world. Um, Both demand uh, the same Christ-like response. They both demand endurance. So Hebrew is this letter written, and the people of Hebrews, Judaism was the big religion in that day, and and Christ's coming kind of rocked the foundation of how they do their religion. Judaism, Christ comes, and Judaism and what he says, I come, and there's a new covenant. There's a new way of the gospel message is going to be spread, and it kind of rocked the old traditional way of doing religion. Well, these new believers in the gospel, if you go through the book of Hebrews, the point that the writer of Hebrews says, uh, it's all about making Christ preeminent. He is everything. He is more important than Judaism. He is more important than your traditions. He is more important than Moses and uh, you know, the, the people of the Old Testament. He is the most thing and follow him. Why would the writer of Hebrews say that? Well, these people, new believers, uh, well, not brand new, but they're, they're fairly, they've gone a little way in their belief and they've had some persecution uh, and they stayed true to their faith. But you go through the years and sometimes in your faith, you can become so comfortable in your faith, you almost let your guard down. I'm really good. I'm really good where we are. Everything's going great. And then, here it comes. The next storm of life or whatever. And in these people's life, there were some, uh, uh, some emperors that were bringing intense persecution. That and, of course, Jerusalem and the Judaism was saying, come on back. <laughs> come on back to all the way you know your history. Come on back. Come on back. That's just two way out there to go out there on that plank. So here the writer of Hebrews saying, no, you need to endure, and you need to endure. So how do you endure? Why do you endure? Uh, Hebrews 10, 32 and 34 says that they had already endured, uh, but he then goes on and he told them not to cast away their confidence, for you have need of endurance, verses 35 and 36. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 12. When I look down, I get really loud, so I have to be careful looking down. I can move this down here. There we go. Hebrews 10, 32 and 34, I just talked about that. But uh, here the writer is going to say, you keep on enduring the race of faith. Keep on doing what you're doing. Don't change. Don't go backwards. Keep moving forward. It's the same message we need today. And so I'm going to start with today that talk about endurance or, uh, or uh, patience. Uh, to just keep doing the right thing over and over again, day after day. First thing, to have endurance in our life, we need to embrace your adversity. God teaches us endurance by allowing us to experience adversity. Anyone experience adversity before? You will, if you haven't. Everyone has, one way or another. And your adversity may be different. Well, it will be different than someone else. Maybe similar to somebody, but it may just be your path. Uh, you know, back to the gym illustration. Is going to the gym painful? Is it kind of a pain? Sure, it is. Is it worth it? Yep. Even though you may be sore, if you're sore in two days, then you actually did something good. Uh, it's good to be sore because what you did is you broke down your muscles and they're going to build back up and then hopefully they get bigger. Where there's kind of the idea with endurance. 
whether God allows this trial to come into our life or whether it's the fallen world and there's just bad things that happen, cannot be explained. Of course, there is a sovereign God that holds all the world in his hands. He's, at, he's, he's on his throne. He knows what happens. When something bad comes and we can say, God, why did you let this happen? And we've all been there. The bad news, the bad report, the firing of the job, uh, the not getting the next job, the disobedient child that you know is just going to conflict with you every day. Whatever it is, these trials, they come. James 1, 2 through 4 says, count your trials as a kind of joy. There should be a joy in knowing that we will gain patience and maturity from going through trials. Um, but it's never, it's never really joyful to go through it in the middle of it. But the testing of our faith does produce maturity, spiritual maturity. Uh, I like to use the point of like, what if, if to walk with God, to be God's child, to put my faith and trust in God, be a Christian? Everything is perfect. Everything goes exactly how Keith would want. Is that going to grow my faith more than if he has a step, a setback here, has a difficulty here? God, being the sovereign God, is going to say, I want to test and see if your faith is going to stand true during the difficult time, or are you just in it because everything goes the way you want it? Because that's testing your faith. The difficult times is when our faith gets tested. We have to embrace that there will be adversity. There will be difficult times. Um, Paul makes the same point in Romans 5, 3 through 4, that we learn that tribulation produces perseverance. We cannot, cannot learn to endure without being put in situations that demand endurance. Um, you all ever heard of Katie Ledecky? Anyone know that name? Katie Ledecky, Olympic swimmer, uh, American, of course. She first hit the world stage and won the gold medal in the London Olympic Games, 2012, and she was 15 years old. These kind of stories make me feel really old and lazy. Uh, Not a good swimmer, just wasn't going to be my thing. But she she won gold in the Olympic Games at the age of 15. She won more golds at the Rio Games in 2016. She doesn't just win her races. She wins them by amazing margins. Uh, as all great athletes, she trains relentlessly. If you, I love watching stories of Olympic athletes, and they do that during the Olympic Games, winter or summer, whichever one. And, and you know they all have just so much endurance that they would do all that training and, they would, and what they eat and don't eat and how, what time they get up and how often they work and go to the go to the pool to do the swimming. They just countless over and over, repetition, repetition, repetition. And they seem to embrace the pain it takes to rise to the Olympic level. They count the costs, they do it, they train, they follow faithfully their regiment. Uh, They swim against the best swimmers to know if they lose or don't beat the best swimmer, then know what they have to do to correct to beat the next swimmer. They do whatever it takes to, to press on. We have to embrace the occasional adversity that comes with our own divine training plan. God has a divine training plan for all of us. And when the adversity comes, embrace it. Don't blame God. Don't yell at God. Don't forget God or turn away from God. That's not not the right answer. God will, he promises to be with you. He will. But embrace the adversity. And that helps us first step of building endurance. But then also surround yourself with Champions. Hebrews 12 1 
verses 1 through 3. I'll read it all. New King James. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Anytime there's a therefore in the scriptures, that means to look before that. What was the author saying before the therefore? Because he's, he's building his case. Well, if you look at chapter 11, it is the chapter of the most faithful people of all time. <laughs> these people of faith, these Old Testament times, uh, these people God honors for their faithfulness to stay true to God. So you got, you know, heroes of the faith. You got Abraham, you got Noah, you got Enoch, Abel, uh, Sarah, Moses. Joseph, Isaac, the list goes on. So he says all of these, he starts with all these people, they stay true to their faith, they endured. Their whole, their whole race, they stayed true to God. It says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Those witnesses, those people that stayed true to God, and, and they had difficulties, they had adversity, they had difficult times. They stayed true to God. Those people, look to them to be your examples. Well, (laughs) I got the stuttering part of Moses. I got that part down, you know, that kind of thing. They all had some some faults. They had some limitations, some things that held them back. But because they stayed true to God, God really honored them and blessed them and used them in mighty ways. So you need to have some champions that that look to the faith. That's why the the writer of Hebrews says, have, have these people in mind. But sometimes it's hard to compare yourself to Moses or to Isaac or to those people like, uh, I think our situations are a little bit different. Uh, they didn't have cell phones, these things. They had other things, but they didn't have them, some of the things we have, and we didn't have some of the things they have. Um, so have those champions, but then I would say also have some other champions in the faith that you look up to. And that could be someone in our church. That could be a deacon in our church, a staff member of a church. It can be someone in America or someone foreign. It doesn't matter. Get a biography. There's, they write books about people these days, evidently. I'm learning this. That was a joke. It wasn't good. But uh, any all read. Anyone know how to read? Um, they make digital things, too. So. But get a good biography of someone that it doesn't have to be Christian. In the reference of the, the swimmer, the Olympic swimmer, I never said she was a Christian or I've talked about her faith. But you can get, you can look at some people that, man, they just model endurance. They just, they just do it over and over and over again. Find some people and then find some spiritual heroes uh, today, of course, but also in history that you can look back. For me personally, I go back and I read some old-time preachers. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones in Great Britain, I did my dissertation on him. And uh, he was a doctor first, like literally a doctor. And then he felt the call and surrendered to be a preacher. Because in his biography that I read... He got tired of healing people or trying to heal people physically, but ultimately, whether they died, their biggest problem is spiritually. (laughs) Yeah, that's what Jesus said all the time. Um, But a guy that had all of the credentials and everything from the world's perspective and had it all, doctor's salary and all those things, he gave it up and said, no, God, I want, God called him and he used him to to be one of the greatest preachers preachers in Britain. Um, 
But then third, find your passion and pursue it. Uh, When your passion in life is clearly defined, it makes endurance easier. When you like what you do, it's easier to do what you do. If you don't like what you do, it's going to be harder. Um, So find something you really desire and go after it. Fight harder for it. Uh, There was a biography of uh, Eliezer ben Yehuda, a Jew who devoted his life to the restoration of the Hebrew language. Uh, Because modern generations of the Jews returning to their homeland of Israel, they didn't know Hebrew. Hebrew, even when I took Hebrew about 15 years ago, they always said it's just a written language. You don't really pronounce it. No one uses it anymore. Well, this guy some 40 years ago was saying, no, I want this. When people come back to Israel, I want them to be doing their Hebrew language. And so he wrote and spent 40 years uh, coming up with a 16-volume dictionary of the Hebrew language. Uh, And uh, he wanted it to become the everyday language of the Jewish people in Israel. And he lived to see the dream fulfilled. If you go to Israel today, you'll find his grave, and you'll see written on his tombstone, here lies Eliezer ben Yehuda, and then at comma it says, faithful fanatic. In that context, I don't think they meant it in a nice way. But if that's the worst thing they call you, I'm like, good. At least he was faithful. Forty years of doing the same thing, of all the, all the, the, the dictation he had to do and all that, he finished what he wanted to do. Um, I hope that we would be people that endure anything to accomplish God's will in our lives. Um, because God has a particular purpose for each of us. And finding that brings fulfillment, and you endure, and there's ups and downs. There's easy days and hard days, but God is always faithful. God is always there, and uh, trust him for that. But then in this passage in Hebrews 12, you see that you have to get rid of what's holding you back. It says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, Hebrews 12.1. If you think of the Olympics, do you see them swimming in overcoats and boots? No, they're barely wearing anything. Speedos, I'm like, I would never wear that out in public. And they're like, hey, this is it. Why are they, they're barely wearing anything. Why? Because it's all aerodynamic. It is, they know down to the, you know, hundredth second, this is going to slow me down this much and I will not wear that. This passage then is, why would we, the sin that so easily entangles, why would we weigh ourselves down, carry the weight of sin or temptation and the world, whatever you want to say, why would you run your waist with that slowing you down? Makes no sense. Just like an Olympic athlete, you know, an eraser wearing more than they would need to wear. Makes no sense. So, Get rid of that which entangles you, which allows you to, to not be faithful to run your race. First um, Peter 4.12 says, uh, Don't be surprised when difficult things happen. The doubt, discouragement, it can come, it, the weight around your neck, it can, it can weigh you down, it can cause you to drag or not finish. Um, and if we're not careful, these encumbrances uh, can become sins if we don't lay them aside. Romans 14.23, Whatever is not from faith is sin. You and I must identify the things in our life which could be sinful problems, sinful weights we're carrying. The good news is Christ died for our sin. There is, if we repent, there is forgiveness at the cross. Yes, but then repentance means you, you do a 180. You don't just like, uh, please God forgive me for my anger with my daughter. 
but I will do it again tomorrow, and I will do it again the next day, and I will do it again. There should be some change of behavior here. If I truly repent of it, I don't want to do it. Now, I may fail again. I may become angry again. But uh, there's remorse in it. I'm going to turn from it. Get rid of the things that weigh you down. It will cause you not to endure in your faith. Uh, another thing, don't even think about quitting. Hebrews 12.1, let us run the in- with endurance the race that's set before us. Let us is used 13 times in the book of Hebrews. It's this exhortation. You can kind of picture the coach saying, come on, come on, come on. You can do it. You can do it. Keep going. Don't quit. Keep going. Any marathon runners in here? We got the, yeah, I see you all back there. I haven't made the marathon yet because I want to quit. A bad example of what I'm teaching. But uh, I did a little bit of long distance running when I was younger. And I was pretty good at it. I had a pretty good endurance, and I could run 12 laps around the track because my PE coach just sat under the tent and drank her tea. It was really weird. Run, Keith, run. I was like Forrest Gump or something, but I was really good at it. And then they said, you got to come at like 5 a.m. in the morning and run track every day. And that's when I said, no, I'm not. I'll just do it in the PE hour. Uh, no, thank you. I quit. Um, in our faithful walk, in our faithful race, we can't quit. You can't uh, be any reason why you quit because it's so important that we continue going. Because God is faithful, we need to be faithful. In the book Grid, it was about uh, this book that makes people succeed. And the author, Angela Duckworth, she presented two points of view. And in her book, she wanted to see two groups of people. What was their reason for their success? One group of people, they're born with the right genes. They benefit from the right advantages in life. They succeed. Or does that bring them success and they just grit it out? Or is it mainly about the other group that uh, they don't have all the right genes, they're not born with the right, but they just persevere. They just keep going, keep going, and they get it done. Sure enough, after her uh, research, she, number, she found out that number two is the one that actually has the most advantages and key to success. It's really just about repetition, repetition, and being gritty. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. Keep holding fast to an interesting and purposeful goal. Keep investing day after day, week after week, in a challenging practice. And, uh, and if you fall down seven times, rise up and go eight times. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Then the last from this passage is stay focused on the goal. The key to everything is to have the right goal. If you have the wrong goal, you're... Uh, you probably won't finish. Well, what is, what is our goal? How, what should we keep our eyes on? It says in verse 2 of Hebrews 12, fix your eyes on Jesus. And what about him? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus, our example, endured the cross and shame in order to reach his goal. And his goal was to sit down at the right hand of God. And he did it. He finished it. He said it's finished, and he finished it. So this writer of Hebrews says, use Jesus as your example. That's, uh, we need to endure too. Not that I'm going to go die on a cross necessarily. That's not necessarily my finishing my race, but that was Jesus's. But for me, in my walk, in my job where I'm at right now as associate pastor, then I teach and I preach and I do everything for God, for his glory. And I do it 110%. Because in anyone's job, isn't it easy just to kind of coast and just kind of take it easy? Just kind of relax, just settle in? That's what the enemy wants to whisper in whatever job you have, whether it's in the ministry or whether it's not in the ministry. Your work ethic, 
People aren't watching you. It doesn't really matter what you do. It always matters what you do. You're an example. We're salt and light in a world that lots of people are just coasting, you know, checking Facebook and Twitter every two seconds, not maximizing their time. No, the goal is God has here me for a reason, and I need to, I need to finish it. I need to stay true and follow Jesus' example. In his book, Good to Great, Jim Collins tells the story of a championship high school cross-country team that based their success on this one simple idea, and that was to run their best at the end of the race. In the last third of a long cross-country meet, that's when they kick it into gear and see how many guys they can pass the last third of the race. And sure enough, they won a lot of them. The coaches, the runners all bought into this, and it's all about finishing your best. Run your best at the end. I don't know when Christ is going to return, but I, but I do know we're getting closer every day. And what I do know is I want to run strong at the end. You know? Uh, when you're young and in your 20s and 30s, you've got all this energy and you're just, you don't really know everything, but it's an exciting time and maybe kids come in and then new jobs and you can move. It's no big deal. Change is great. It's exciting all that. And then you settle in your 30s and 40s, and then you have teenage kids and things settling in, and then you're thinking about retirement your parents, and you're also thinking about kids and maybe grandkids one day. And, and then you approach 50 and 60 and 70s in your retirement age, and, and all, life is, goes pretty fast. When you're 20, you don't think it does, but it goes pretty fast. The point of all that is, what is the goal of your life? According to this verse, it should be bringing honor and glory to to God. That's why we're here. So are you doing that? Are you enduring your trials, your difficulties? Are you pushing through? Because the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes, and He can help you endure. He can give you the power and the strength to do that. So continue on in endurance. But also then the next one is uh, compassion, the fruit of the Spirit. The next one is compassion. I learned it as kindness, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is, I think that's New King James Version. Uh, David Jeremiah chose to go with a synonym of compassion over kindness. Okay, that's fine. Uh, and I will say, all of these gifts, fruit of the Spirit, you, may, you and I may be better at some of them over than other them. But it's not like a personality thing. It's this, not the way God... The Holy Spirit can... Even if you're the least compassionate person there is, which I don't have the most compassion all the time, um, the Holy Spirit can change you and allow you to be compassionate in that moment when you need to be compassionate. So uh, I am compassionate at some points, but there's sometimes I'm more sarcastic. But that's not good. Uh, compassion here. What is, what is compassion? And it's a big word, or being kind. I would suggest to you that moments of compassion, they just happen. It's not something you plan. You're presented with a scenario and it comes out of the blue or someone asks for money or someone needs, you can help someone in this moment of time. And we all have a choice in that moment of time. Am I either going to help or not help? Am I going to show compassion or am I going to be too busy? The best example of, and of course, Jesus Christ was the ultimate person that showed compassion. He was never too busy to talk with anybody, even the sinners, the lowest of lows, the tax collectors. Uh, he, he would talk with people in adultery. He would talk with the sick. It didn't matter to him. He was always showing compassion. 
But there was this story, and you're, you're familiar with the story. If you have your Bible, turn over to Luke. Uh, yeah, Luke chapter 10. Great illustration. Jesus uses a parable here. The Good Samaritan is the parable title. Um, you may or may not be familiar with the story. But a lawyer comes to, to Jesus, and anytime a lawyer uh, uh, and the lead of a, of a Jew, uh, he's trying to trick Jesus. Uh, a lawyer in their days would know all the uh, Old Testament texts frontwards and backwards. Okay? So he's trying to test Jesus, and he's trying to show off and show Jesus how much he knows, and Jesus has a way of turning that on him and showing him actually he's in the wrong for how he... Uh, how he approaches who a neighbor is. So, uh, chapter 10, verse 25. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is, what is your reading of it? So he answered, I said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. Touche, good answer. He didn't stop there, though, but he wanted to justify himself. Interesting, the text it just nails him on the head. Like He wanted to be puffed up here, show Jesus how much he knew. So he says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said this parable. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I'll repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the lawyer said, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. A couple things about compassion. Jesus in this parable uh, it's a really interesting point. That's often why he told these stories, is you can put yourself in the story, you know, the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, all these parables that he tells. It's like a mirror, and he puts it in front of you, like, there you go, there's the message. As opposed to just coming out and it's like, your neighbor's a Samaritan, or your neighbor's anyone that's wounded. He, does, he, didn't, he just shoots straight. He likes to kind of round about it. But uh, it's a great way, and it's, it applies throughout all the years, even though we're not... Levites, and we don't have all these same characters, we can get it. We understand what Jesus is saying. First thing, you see what compassion is not. You see that in here. The story gives both sides of compassion. It says how not to respond, and it says how to respond. In these moments of opportunities where you can show kindness or love or compassion to, to anybody. The first thing is compassion is not academic. It's not academic. Um, He's not trying to get some academic question asked. Well, this lawyer is. He's trying to be academic. He's trying to get the right answer. I just need to get 100 on this test and do what's right. Um, 
And he asked, you know, uh, teacher, what shall I do inherit eternal life? In verse 25, um, this guy, expert in Mosaic law, he knew the answer. So he answered correctly. Jesus asked, what does the law say? And he said, yeah, love God, love your neighbor. Right. He commended his answer. Jesus did. But then he goes on in verse 29 and says, who is my neighbor? And this was what gave away this guy's heart. This lawyer's heart in this story of this parable that guy that was robbed and beat up on the road, he ain't going to stop for him. He's just going to keep going. And that's exactly what Jesus is showing here. He gave away his heart. He knew what the law said, but he did not live out the law. He didn't want to admit who his neighbor is. It's not just the person next door. Your neighbor could be anyone. Anybody in need could be our neighbor. Um. So Jesus didn't allow the lawyer to turn neighbor into this academic definition, Jew versus Gentile or some other distinction. You know, Jesus didn't allow him to do that. No, compassion is an act of the heart. It's not an academic debate. It's not whether how you define neighbor. No. Hayden Robinson, a, a seminary professor and a pastor, he, he put it like this. He said, my neighbor is a person with need I can meet. That's who your neighbor is. Anyone's a person with a need that you can meet. Now, you and I cannot meet everyone's needs, but you can meet somebody's need. And that's what Jesus here is saying. It's not just, you know, the, oftentimes the difference of, of uh, applying God's word and living it out versus just knowing it, you know, the difference is simply from here to here, right? I know all the right things, but I don't really, my heart's not, I don't do it. I'm not acting upon it. Right? Jesus is going to give that example here. This guy knows who his neighbor should be, but he's not going to act on it. And Jesus is going to hold up the mirror of this parable and say, you're not loving your neighbor like you should. Compassion is not academic. It's also not abstract. Uh, he began his story, this parable, uh, with, with a person that, that goes through a thing that would be easily identified in that day. Jerusalem is some um, uh, 2,500 feet above the sea, something like that, and, and, and uh, Jericho is some 800 feet below sea level. So you got these two humongous cities, and you got this path that has huge gorge, gorges and, and, and you know, really steep declines and inclines, tight curves, places, lots of places for people to hide, for thieves to hide in that, and that would be totally normal. And Jesus knows that. So you have these two huge busy cities, um, constant traffic of the priests. Many of the priests would live in uh, in Jericho, and then they would travel up. They have, there's hundreds of priests that would go up to Jerusalem to the temple. For two weeks, you would do your priestly duties. For two weeks, you'd be on the high of the highs. You just had revival in the temple, the Holy of Holies with God. You're on your spiritual high, and then you will walk back down the track to Jericho. And when he says here, this priest is the first guy that comes, uh, you'll see the priest doesn't even help the guy at all. Which is a slap to the face for anyone in ministry. But it can be true at times. You would think the priest or the Levite would be the one to help, but they don't. So, uh, compassion is not abstract. Jesus is very detailed in, in this story and what he gives. And everyone hearing his story would say, yeah, I get it. And compassion is not afraid. You see the first guy comes, it's the priest. Um, I just kind of said that he's probably coming back from being in the Jerusalem temple. 
He's on his spiritual high. He sees this wounded man off the side of the road, been beat up, left for nothing. Uh, And he has a decision to make in that moment. Um, By the religious law of that time, if a man was dead and the priest touched him, the priest would have been ceremonially, ceremonially unclean for seven days. So there was a risk to help this guy that I don't know if he's dead or alive. If he is dead and he touches him, uh, he, he, he reaps a cause for a few days. So the priest just made a decision. Uh, he was going to stay on his spiritual high and walk across the road on the other side. Not even going to stop and check with him. Stay as far away from the risk. Um, Charles Swindoll tells a story of, a, of some seminary students that were going through the, this passage from Luke, and they were studying it in the Greek class, so you're breaking down all the, all the words and all the uh, you know, verb tenses and all the things. And uh, they decided, a few of the students decided to do a test for this passage. So they dressed one of their group up in torn, bloody clothing, had him lay outside one of the seminary buildings, and he, like he had been attacked. And, of course, this is a test. They wanted to see if any of their other students would stop by and help the guy. And, of course, none did. The students knew the Greek text of the Good Samaritan story but had no idea how to apply it. Religion took precedence over a needy person. How many times is that true in our lives? It can be true quite often. 1 John 3, 17 and 18, it says that people who have the ability to help others but fail to do so lack the love of Again, compassion is not something, uh, God just didn't make me that way. Well, the Holy Spirit's pretty compassionate. One with Jesus, Jesus is pretty compassionate. You should be allowing the compassion of the Holy Spirit in your life to be developing that fruit of the Spirit in your life for those moments when they come, because those moments will come. Compassion is not analytical. So the priest doesn't stop. The Levite, Levite is the guy that, maybe the worship leader, skinny jeans, um, he didn't have skinny jeans on, I just made that up. But the Levite is also the scribe. They, they weren't priests, but they had a lot of important roles in the church, okay? church people. Okay? Pretty much the same thing. He, uh, he calculated kind of what was at stake and uh, figured someone else would come after him that could probably stop. Maybe he had somewhere he had to go. You know, uh, There's a lot of people like that on the road in Midland. They have somewhere they got to go. They got to pass me to get that one car length ahead of me. That will test your faith. Endure, endure. Um, anyhow, uh, this guy analyzed and he said, no, nah, I'm not going to do it. Uh, again, true religion. There's a difference between true religion, which is caring for the needy and doing religious work. Compassion, this kind of compassion, what this Samaritan does, he doesn't want the credit for it. He just knows what's right and wrong, and this guy needed help, and he could help him, and he helped him. That was it. It's not rocket science. Um, so some things compassion are not, but then what is compassion? Well, it's, it's action. It's actually doing something. Back to the analytical, you know, the paralysis of analysis. Some people have that. What should I do? I don't know. And then you never actually do anything. You just think about it, all the different scenarios, come up with all the pros and cons, let's do a list, talk it all out, and not do a daggum thing. What good is that? Contrast that with what compassion is, and it's an action. You see this third man, uh, he comes down this road of Jesus' story, and this is a Samaritan who took action. He took action. What does the text say? He cleaned the man's wounds with oil and wine. He bandaged him up. 
put the injured man on a donkey, took him to an inn, put him up for the night, stayed with him a night. Next morning, got up. If you need anything else, bill me. Additional funds will come in later. I'll pay the balance. Whatever this guy needs, I'm there for him. That's what compassion looks like. It's, it's action. And the story illustrated that only uh, this is the only person involved in the story whose action demonstrated a true knowledge of God and his word. And the irony of the whole story, if you are a Jew in the first century, is you hate Samaritans. Every Jew hates the Samaritans. From their history and the Assyrian invasion, and then they intermingled and all that. No Jew likes the Samaritans. They hate them so much they would bypass going through Samaria. You go the long way to not go through Samaria. You hate Samaritans. And the irony of the whole story is it's the good Samaritan. What a slap in the face to these Jewish religious guys that think they have it all together. But Jesus does that exactly to make his point. Um, Because anybody can show the kindness, the compassion of Jesus Christ, even people you hate. Compassion is what we see. You see the first thing, that the guy, he saw him and he had compassion. Verse 33. Uh, The priest and the Levite, they saw the needy man with their eyes, but not with their heart. I see him. I'm moving on. It's easy to do that for all of us. Um, I see it, but I don't, uh, I don't step up in that moment to help if I could have helped. Again, I say, not every situation do you have the means and capability and responsibility to help everyone. But you and I both know there's moments that we could help that we don't. And I think when we do that, we're missing the opportunity for God to bring his blessing and to change our character, to change who we are, that I'm not thinking about Keith 24-7. I'm thinking about other people. That there, I live amongst a world of people that some are really hurting, and I could help them some way. It's not always financially, but some financially. Some by filling up their gas tank. Some by helping them move. Whatever. And a neighbor does not have to be a stranger. Don't think you're, And your neighbor doesn't just have to be the person next door. That is your neighbor. Literally, it's your neighbor. But your neighbor could be also, it's just to love others. It could be someone in your family. It could be a brother. It could be a niece or nephew. It could be a grandparent, a parent that needs help, and you go help. For sure, we can show compassion, even in our family, even in our own friendships. And we should. The challenge is, is we have to see the people in need. This Samaritan saw the broken, needy man on the road, and he helped. Um, the problem is if we don't see the people's needs. When Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, Matthew 9, 36. When Jesus saw the crowd, he was moved with compassion, Matthew 14, 14. Matthew 15, 32, Jesus moved with compassion. Jesus saw broken, needy humanity, and he wanted to help. You and I are a Christ follower, then you should be helping people in need because that's what Christ would do. That's what he did. And that's why the Holy Spirit is in us, to help people that need help. I think it's important. uh, uh, I wish I had tons of examples where I could say how compassionate I was in the moments. But that would be bragging on myself, and I don't want to do that. I've confessed to you I don't do it perfectly, but there are moments I have stepped up and helped. But um, I went to Honduras on mission trip many years ago. Uh, I'd never been overseas before. And I love... 
uh, flying into Honduras is when Danny Jones like, this is the like, third most dangerous airport in all the world. I'm like, thanks, Danny. Thanks for telling me that before we land, you know, kind of a thing. But uh, I'll never forget, I encourage you to go on a mission trip. I think we will be going on a mission trip again at some point. And I would encourage teenagers and students to go on a mission trip because when you live in America your whole life, you think everyone in the world is just like you. And you know that's not the case. You go to a third world country and places that don't have water, don't have food, you drive through Tegucigalpa, I can't say it right, I'm just a white guy up here trying to say those words, but uh, the capital of Honduras, and you see machine guns just all over the city as you're driving through, and they drive like bats out of Hades in these towns. I, was like, I thought I was going to die on the streets, but they got guns everywhere. Like, why do they need the big guns? Big robbery happening everywhere, okay? But the needs, and you just, I would encourage you to go because you, not that we don't have needs in Midland, Texas, we do. We have needs in Texas. We have needs in the United States. Absolutely. But go and get yourself out there where people are just hurting. See the need. You can't step up to the need if you don't see the need. That's also why we bring missionaries here to report and give us what's happening around the world so we see the needs that are out there. And if you can help financially, help financially. But there's other ways you can help and show compassion as well. Compassion is not just what we see, but it's what we, what we do. Um, Tangible, concrete, quantifiable actions is what the Samaritan did. He used everything he had with him to help this guy. He didn't go, I mean, he had all the first aid kit, he had all the oil and all the stuff with him. He had a donkey put him on. Uh, he went to the inn. He knew the connections, and he's going to help this guy. Was there a risk involved in his compassion? Think about it. Absolutely there was. If you are a robber between Jerusalem and Jericho, you want to beat a guy up to half dead, you know some rich guy, some priest, some Levite's going to come. They're rich. They're going to offer to help that guy. When they're offering to help that guy, what should you do? You rob that guy. Would have been really easily done. This guy counted the risk. It didn't matter to him. There was risk, but he still knew what was right and wanted to help regardless, and he did that. Um, you kind of equate it to today, if you see someone lying in the street needing help and they're calling out, you know, or you see someone in the street and they're beat up or they're homeless or whatever it is, you might say, I'll call 911, right? I'll call 911. Well, that's the least you could do is call 911. What could you do to help him more or her more? Well, you get a little bit more involved. You, know, you show a little bit more compassion. You give a little bit more of your time. You give a little bit more of your effort. Um, I'll never forget, we, uh, Chrissy was pregnant with Mason. Madison was in a, her child seat in the back in, a, in our a Jeep Cherokee. And we were driving south, I guess going to my parents, and we were in Victoria, and we just got through McDonald's. And uh, you pulled out this intersection, but it was one of those you pull out, and then you got to get right, you go left, and then you go immediately right to get on the feeder to get on the highway. Well, little did I know, or I was distracted, Christy was getting the kids Big Mac all situated, not have seatbelt on, anything like that. So I pull out, kind of distracted. I didn't know that this street's going 55 miles an hour with no stop sign. So I pull out right in front of a car, and then I got to hit my brakes to turn immediately right, and this car hits my back right and tips us over on our side. 
I'd never been in a wreck like that before. I'd never been on my side, but I was disoriented. I had my seatbelt on, but my wife, with her pregnant, with our mason in her belly, was not seated up, so I was concerned about that. Before I could even get oriented, there were people on top of the car helping to get us out of that car. That's what a good Samaritan would do. I wish I had more stories where I was the good Samaritan. But I'm thankful for people that, and I don't know if they're Christian or not, they just did what's right in that moment. There are a lot of Americans that just do that. When there's a need, they just step up and do that. And uh, they just do it. They act. But then also compassion is how we do it. You'll see here that they showed mercy to this needy man. Um, he showed mercy over and over again. He, he wanted to use his oil, his wine, cloth for bandages, donkey money. It didn't matter. Uh, just a great example. Again, it would have been a slap in the face for it not to be the Jewish priest or the Jewish Levite that did the right thing. Jesus did that intentionally. Not that some Jewish priests and some Levites, I'm sure, did do the right things. But Jesus had his point for saying that. Uh, How you do it matters. And it does come at a cost. I'll I'll tell you one other personal story. My brother and I, my brother's a year and a half older than me. and He was at A&M and I was at A&M. So for a year or two, we were there together. We were driving back to A&M after a weekend at home in South Texas. So we're driving five hours to, from Corpus, Portland to uh, A&M. It seemed like forever. Five hours today is nothing, but back then it seemed like forever. And we didn't have a great car, so you never know if you're going to get actually to your destination or not. So sure enough, this one time we're driving this, my grandfather's old Mustang, and it, I don't know if it overheated, something blew up, smoke's coming out of the hood. We're at a gas station in LaGrange, Texas. We're close, but not there. Nope, Schulenburg, Schulenburg, I think, yeah. We're stopped at a gas station, and it's late at night. Gas station uh, repair places are closed. We're at a gas station, and we're, not me- we're mechanically challenged, if you want to say it that way. We have issues. We don't know what's happening. Smoke is bad. That's not good. Overheating. We don't have any idea what we're doing. We're just two college students. We're looking under the hood, trying to look like we know what we're doing. We have no idea what we're doing. A guy comes up. We have an A&M decal on the back of our, our, our car. A gentleman comes up, says, hey, what do you need? What's going on? We, we tell him we have no idea. He says, well, all of the gas stations, are, all the repair shops are closed. Like, we know that. We have no idea what we're going to do. I guess we'll spend the night in the car. This guy, he's an Aggie. Okay, I'm just in this. It's a true story. It happened. Why don't you come back to our house, spend the night. You'll get laced to class in the morning. We'll go to the repair shop. First thing they open, I know a guy. We'll take your car down there and get you on the way. We did. We don't know what we're doing. So we spent the night with this guy. This was not on their docket for this, but they chose to help two stupid, ignorant college students with their car. And he took us the next morning to the car. They were, of course, very gracious at their house. We're very polite. Um, I'm not sure if I'd want my kids to do this because you never know about people, but you've got to trust people in your times of need. Uh, and uh, very great. They took us the next day. They got it repaired. The guy paid the bill. We never got the bill. And it was probably hundreds of dollars, and we were on our way. You have moments in life where you experience the kindness, the compassion of some other people. And I think God allows you to experience that. So then remember, you can go back and do that for somebody else when your moment comes. You know? Someone can be stuck in Midland, Texas, whether they're an Aggie or a Red Raider or whatever, and they have car problems. Am I going to take the time to help them, or am I going to wish someone else would come and help them? I'm really busy. Compassion is how we do it and what we do. And oftentimes it comes at at a cost. 
Um, the, the Samaritan gave the innkeeper a down payment for anything that this guy needed. His true love is sacrificial. He displayed that, and it always comes at a cost. Um, so the story, it served as a, as a rebuke to the overconfident, self-satisfied lawyer. You know, Jesus says, who was his neighbor? Which of the three were the neighbor? You notice he doesn't say the Samaritan. He hates that people and those people so much, he will not say the name. The guy that showed mercy. He knew the answer. And then Jesus ends it and says, go and do that. Calculate the cost. Go help those in need. Um, True love, true compassion and kindness is costly. You learn that in a marriage. You learn that as a parent. You learn that as a friend. You learn it as a loved one. Truly uh, helping people in need comes at a, it comes at a cost. But it's what we're called to do. Love your neighbor as yourself. To give compassion, the kindness of God to a stranger. And sometimes those strangers may not return the favor. They might not be grateful for it. They may rob you. We as Christians tend to err on the side of, I don't trust anybody and I'm not going to do anything because I can't trust anybody. I think we miss out on the blessings of God. I'm not saying count the cost, your risk, whatever, but act sometime. Do something. That moment comes, and like I said when I opened, it could be a different for different people. I don't know what the moment will be for you, but I want you to think back to this passage when the moment comes and you see someone in need and you have some way that you can help that person in need, will you do it? God wants you to do it. If you can help. That's what this story is about. As I close, um, Bill was a, a wild-haired, t-shirt-wearing, barefoot college student. He was exotic, uh, and, and he was brilliant, and he was attending college. He became a Christian while attending college. Across the street from the campus was a, a well-dressed, very conservative church, and uh, they wanted to develop a, a student ministry but didn't know how to go about doing it. One day, Bill decides to go to the church, so he walks in, and no shoes, holy jeans, t-shirt, wild hair. Service already started, so Bill started down the back aisle. He starts walking forward, looking for a seat, can't find a seat. His church is packed on this day, couldn't find any seat. By now, people are, 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 are looking to see what's going to happen. This is becoming a little bit uncomfortable. No one's saying anything. Bill gets closer and closer to the pulpit. And he realized there's no seats. So Bill just decides he's just going to sit right there in the middle of the aisle. Right on the carpet, just sit right there. So the congregation is really uncomfortable at this point. This is not the norm. This is not what you're supposed to do. Tension is rising in the air. About this time, from the back of the large church, a deacon uh, is slowly making way towards the front, towards Bill. This deacon is in his 80s, silver hair. Pocket watch, godly man, very elegant, dignified, walking with a cane. Took a long time for the man to reach the boy. The church, totally silent at this moment. Except for the clicking of the man's cane, all eyes are focused on what's going to happen. You couldn't hear any, you know, you, could, you, could, you couldn't hear anyone breathing. People are thinking to themselves, uh, 
this minister can't even preach the sermon till the deacon does what he has to do. This deacon's going to straighten this guy out and say what's right and what's wrong and what you, how you act in church. The elderly man reached Bill and he paused. He dropped his cane on the floor. With great difficulty, he lowered himself and sat down next to Bill to worship with him. The church was silent with emotion. When the minister gained his control, he said, what I'm about to preach, you will never remember. What you have just seen, you will never forget. The story of the Good Samaritan, the story of this deacon and Bill, are, they're not only stories of compassion, but they also illustrate salvation. The human race was helpless and hopeless in the grip of, the grip of sin, untouched, uncared for, yet God loved us. Yet God chose to send his son to die for us. What the elderly deacon did for Bill is exactly what God has done for you and for me. We were sitting all alone in our pain, shame, our, our, our righteous raggedness, yet he sent his son down here to assure us that we would never be alone again. Jesus and his compassion is here. Jesus is kind. Jesus is compassionate. His love is very evident towards each of us, towards, towards all mankind, towards all people. If we will allow him, he will sit down beside us and he will share his compassion with us and through us. Psalm 86, 15, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in mercy and truth. As I close, and I went a little bit long tonight, how are you doing with these two fruit of the Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit teaching you to live with these two fruit of the Spirit? Do you endure the faith? Are you patient in your your walk with the Lord? You're committed. You're all in. You're going to do whatever it takes to bring honor and glory to God in your walk, in your race. You're going to finish strong. Are you compassionate? Are you kind? Do you do the right thing when the moment arises? Do you sacrifice something to show love to somebody else? We should. And the more that the church, the Christians, the believers do it, the more the church becomes more attractive to the lost world. Because the lost world says, do whatever you want and for only you. Live for you. And that is not the message of the Bible. Love God. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the fruit of the Spirit that you have given us. The Holy Spirit is at work in believers' lives, that you are changing us slowly to become more like you. And I pray that we would examine our own hearts and our own lives and say, God, I, for sure I'm a believer, but I need to be exhibiting more of these fruit of the Spirit. I need to search that out. I need to be more like let Christ, through the Holy Spirit, change me. Because you want to do that. And when we allow these fruit of the Spirit to, to live out, and it just speaks volumes to a world that needs these fruit of the Spirit to live through the church, through the believers of Christ. Forgive us where we fail you, but may we strive to even be more uh, persevering and fervent in our faith for you, and that we would live out these truths, and that we would reflect your love and your compassion and your faithfulness to this world. We give you all the glory in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.